good morning and I hope you are well. Welcome to Around the World in 80 Cigars, a little bonus extra mini pod. Or considering what I have in front of me in this little tiny pretty little cigar, perhaps we'll call this the Entracto. Um, in response to uh, Mr Lawrence Davis of uh, Salter Cigars fame asking me to, pleading with me to read a chapter of the book for you. I am here in my little office. It's a beautiful sunny morning. I hope you all enjoyed the uh, weekend Easter weather. It's quiet out there, except for the birds, so let's hope it stays that way. And as I say, I've got this gorgeous little cigar, um, a little Hoyo de Monterey uh, du Mer, cracking beautiful little stick, hand-rolled marvel, um, about the size of your little finger. Well, actually, a bit bigger than my little finger, but... Uh, if you've got normal size hands. So let me, without further ado, <clears throat> spark up this little beauty, grab my copy of Around the World in 80 Cigars, The Travels of an Epicure, and, um, and I'll read Lawrence's favourite chapter. So bear with me. Ah, gorgeous. Right then. Let's <clears throat> find Chapter One, Moustache. No lily-handed baronet he, a great broad-shouldered Englishman, a lord of fat prize oxen and of sheep, a raiser of huge melons and of pine. Tennyson. The hairy guy leering in my direction wears a fez and a moustache in which well-to-do blackbirds could happily retire. He's pointing first at me and then at the television dangling precariously in the corner of the room. I can't make my mind up whether it's because he's friendly or because he's considering dragging me out back to do unspeakable things to me. Either way, it's intimidating and I'm not quite sure how to react. I cough, manage a weak smile and give him a nervous nod. I only came in here for a cigar. I look back longingly at the door to the outside world, but don't want to appear rude. Ah, here comes Sparrows. The hairy guy's moustache parts to reveal a picket fence of teeth, and he starts to point with more urgency. What seems to be exercising him is the live Arabic footage being screened in grainy images in the corner of this little Tunisian cafe, where dust motes dance through shafts of sunlight, and the air is thick with a heavy scent of last night's shisha pipe. The TV reception is poor, the camera work erratic and the copious subtitles in Arabic, but I have a sneaking suspicion of what he's getting at, pointing repeatedly to the little telly in the corner. You see, thoughts of forthcoming public interactions like this have been bubbling away in the back of my mind since I arrived in Tunisia in a dusty whirl of grit, heat, and a surfeit of poor-quality airline gin and tonic. I've managed, in typically inept fashion, to come inside my arrival with the outbreak of the latest episode of the Iraq War saga. In a bout of ill-advised sang foie, I booked my tickets while international posturing was reaching handbags at dawn stage, and when I left the UK at some ungodly hour this morning, several recently dug up experts who were opining that military intervention was becoming increasingly likely. Turns out they were right, and I'd made a mistake. Now, I wasn't flying to Iraq, of course, but Tunisia is a devoutly Muslim country, 
and I wondered how I might be received. My carefree attitude was reduced in careful stages throughout transit until, barely through the sweat-inducing grilling I'd been given at Tunis Immigrations and the bone-jarring transportation onto my hotel accommodation, I noticed the television set in the lobby, showing unmistakable pan shots of desert. Some bored soldiers, a lot more desert, and then, triumphantly, in the eerie green of night vision lenses, the explosions of what could only be guided missiles. For while my plane had crept across the North African continent, and I'd consumed plastic cup after plastic cup of TNT in an effort to induce sleep, fighter planes and bombers had been pursuing a somewhat faster route to deliver the first blows of a new, and the second of recent times, offensive against Saddam Hussein's regime. Arriving at my hotel, I did my best to stop staring at the TV behind the bar, but failed. When I realised the same slime green night footage was being shown on loop every ten minutes or so, even I became inured to its sinister portents, and I toddled off to bed. After a decent night's sleep and a half-decent breakfast, my vim and vigour had returned with added Tabasco. Dash it if I was going to stay trammeled in my hotel hideaway like a caged beast, I thought. In the best traditions of an Englishman abroad, I would walk among the locals with my head held high, breathing the fresh air of the free man. And so, after desultory instruction from a bored-looking receptionist, I struck out to explore the best that Seuss has to offer. As I walked, the heat of the morning began to bake the chalk white pavement, even at this early hour. I considered what I knew of the situation, which was admittedly little, in a bid to avoid putting myself in potentially awkward situations. There were still plenty of tourists in town, that much was obvious. There were a fair smattering of Brits, some Germans, a passel of large Americans, and a motley assortment of others, but I've never been one to swim with the tide, as it were, and I was determined to get off the beaten track a little and see how Tunisians really lived. The majority of them are sunny Muslims, and while I know that the whiskered Saddam is a Ba'athist, I can't quite remember how the Sunnis fit into the wider picture. Was I likely to antagonise them with my mere presence? Seems to work with my wife. However, none of the locals gave me more than a cursory glance as I scuttled deeper towards the old town, dodging scurvy-looking dogs and the kamikaze traffic. And by the time I'd walked up and down an alley or two, of the coolly shaded souk, I was feeling in mid-season form. Nothing untoward had happened. I was accosted by various hawkers and beggars, but no more than I'd braced myself for, and a few of them had even smiled shyly in my direction, instead of reaching for the nearest rock pile and beginning my stoning. It's fair to say there was a whistle on my lips as I strode down the narrow alleyway bordered by the ancient stone of the town wall. I imagined myself Indiana Jones in search of artefacts. At ease in foreign lands, capable of looking after oneself and making friends with all and sundry. In fact, I was feeling so full of joie de vivre that a glass of dark syrupy coffee and a mid-morning cigar seemed just the ticket. Before I knew it, I'd stepped over the threshold of a nearby doorway and into the gloom beyond. A lazy ceiling fan beats wobbling circles, wafting hot air around the room. A crooked ginger cat sprawls drunkenly on a table. 
this is the place for me. Mr. Moustache is at first not apparent. I can hear clanking and banging from within, the sound of broom sweeping floor. So I sit down at a little round table facing the bar and extract my thin cigar, and I wait with a pleasant and expectant smile of the insouciant traveller. Pictures on the old television begin to show what appears to be banks of the river Tigris in Baghdad, and an ever-growing crowd of excitable young men were hell-bent on thrashing long sticks about in among the rushes. Mr. Moustache then suddenly pops up from behind the little wooden counter, and our disturbing mime show begins. He nods, grunts, points, grows hairier by the minute, obviously frustrated, nay incensed by my imbecilic inability to understand what he's alluding to. I can but grin inanely back, pretend to be absorbed in the contents of my trouser pocket, and fleetingly wonder whether I should reach the bright doorway if I chose to make a run for it. Getting no response from the imbecilic foreigner opposite him, Moustache leaves his post to clump heavily over. His shadow falls across the table and sweat trickles lazily between my shoulder blades. I look up. He bristles, Popeye arms crossed, feline green eyes glaring from under beetling brows that could do with the services of good Thatcher. He waves a brawny arm again and says something in a rumbling, bare-voiced French accent. I now wish I hadn't walked out of my GCSE French exam. I shake my head apologetically. Silent images from the screen are showing members of the gathered crowd gingerly peering into the tall grasses, occasionally leaping back as if uncovering a slow, slumbering nest of cobra. Moustache snorts like a cheesed-off Spanish bull. A noise that sounds like loud and violent in the quiet cafe. I nod in desperate agreement with him. To chat, indeed. Will he pass me over to a gang of extremists who'd cover my head in a black hood and bundle me into the back of a car? Will I be handcuffed to a radiator and finally grow that luxuriant beard I've often wondered about? My jelly brain works on the clues I've been given. It's remarkable the nuances you can pick up from a little guesswork, a jigsaw of footage, a healthy imagination and a fear for one's life. I deduce that the TV mob is somehow linked to the alien green night vision spectaculars that have so far dominated Tunisian TV. That this crowd of reed thrashers are convinced that a US plane on its way back from such an overnight bombing raid has been brought down. And that its ejected pilot co-pilot or both, are secreted somewhere along the banks of this ancient Mesopotamian waterway. No doubt the first to find them will get sacks full of cash, a palace and a lifetime of peer group envy. In increasingly frenzied fashion, the crowd on the telly are thrashing their way along the bank and waving their arms around like any self-respecting search party should. Moustache switches his searing gaze between the TV and me, his upper lip adornant crawling like a poisonous caterpillar. He leans in and blocks my view, and he tries out his English. You want? he rasps in a ribbing voice, the ragged fence of teeth revealed again in a wolfish grin. All the better to eat me with. No, no, no not at all, I squeak, my heart sliding into canter and my hands scrabbling against the old wood of the chair back. His beetling brows meet in an infuriated forest thicket, 
and he points deliberately again. And it dawns on my tiny, terrified brain that his finger is pointing not towards the telly now, but back towards the little kitchen behind his counter. From inside, steam is roiling from a bubbling metal kettle nestled on a charcoal grill. He points again, looks questioningly. Then he raises a surprisingly dainty hand, little finger out and everything, and he proceeds to drink from an imaginary cup. Tea. It's just tea. He's asking me if I want a cuppa. I nearly cry in my broken relief, and vigorous nods and ecstatic handshakes ensue. Amid much mopping of my brow and shaking of his leonine head, Moustache departs to prepare another pot of fresh mint tea on his brazier out back. And I'm left with time to breathe and stare into space and convince my heart to stop for a little rest. Not literally, you understand. Just ease its pace a little. And by the time Moustache has proudly delivered back the stout-coloured steaming cup, complete with floating toasted pine nuts and a bucket and a half of sugar, I've calmed down enough to insouciantly light the cigar which got me into this fine mess in the first place. It was ever thus. Here, I must disagree with Freud. A cigar is always more than just a cigar. This Tunisian tale is one of scores I could give you from my travels over the years, where a cigar has led me into, or indeed delivered me from, adventure. Cigars have introduced me to people I'd never otherwise have known, taken me places I'd never otherwise have been. I've eaten meals, tasted wines, sampled spirits, and had conversations that would have been inconceivable, if it not for the involvement of the hand-rolled cigar. This innocent bundle of dried leaves, no chemicals added, lovingly grown, harvested, cured, fermented, rolled and aged, has filled my life with colour, joy and intrigue. That cigar I smoked in that Tunisian cafe all those years ago was actually the very one responsible for selling the seeds of this book. It was a long, thin, elegant Davidoff number two, rich and smooth with a wrapper akin to baking parchment dusted with cocoa powder. I pulled it from my travelled humidor in Seuss that morning as I planned to wander through the streets of the old town. After Moustache and I had overcome our initial misunderstanding and he'd retired to his little kitchen to practice being hairy, I puffed and calmed and watched the blue smoke get chopped into layers by the wobbling fan. I told myself with a relieved chuckle that cigars had got me into plenty of scrapes over the years and I began to top them up. One by one the list grew and I began to see a patchwork of people and places, little red flags on a spinning globe that marked each place of travel with an homage to the puro, from the Spanish word for pure, meaning a cigar made of tobacco from just one country. It became apparent that much of my adult life, deliberately or not so deliberately, in a variety of intriguing ways, had been defined by the allure of this mystical stick. I investigated further, even ordering a fresh mint tea for my new best friend while I contemplated. This rich vein of stories spanned a quarter of a century, all my adult life, and connected everything I'd ever done since the age of 18. And I've done a fair bit in that time. I've trained as a news reporter, worked as head of copywriting for a blue chip bank, flown birds of prey for a living, 
and found peace as a lifestyle and luxury travel writer, meeting new people and seeing new places from Africa to Asia, through the cigar fields of Nicaragua to the bamboo forests of Japan, from Flanders to the Hebrides and beyond. These days, I spend a considerable part of my working life writing about cigars too for magazines around the globe. And I get to combine my love of travel and new people and places with a love for these handcrafted marvels. I realised that over the years, I've found myself in more than enough cigar-related scrapes to fill a book. So why don't you write one then? I ask myself out loud, risking the fairy brow of moustache wriggling in my direction as I did so. And why not indeed? I'd learned a lot about cigars and their production by now. I dug out the finest shops in dozens of countries and was on various tasting panels, refining my palate to the stage where I could discern and differentiate flavours and nuances that regionally grown tobaccos produce. My various assignments had given me a vast scope of reference. I'd met and chatted to dozens of the world's best cigar makers and enjoyed their creations in some of the most luxurious and awe-inspiring locations on the planet. So damn it, I would write the book. And this travelogue was born. Travelogue unlike you've ever read, I'm sure of that. Whether you like cigars or not shouldn't make a jot of difference to your enjoyment of it. I write for dozens of magazines and companies about everything from fishing to men's tailoring, great food and wine and artisanal craftsmen. And within these pages, you'll find tales from my trips and travels which encompass a smorgasbord of Epicurean delights. But if you like the occasional whiff of a well-made smoke, then settle down to enjoy yourself. The cigar finds a place in all the stories that follow. It binds them, much as it does in my memory as I cast back and remember each one. It's easier for me to remember the specifics of each occasion when I remember the cigar moment that punctuated it. Suddenly I can recall the colours, the sounds, the smells. The cigar is a flag in the sand, a moment recorded in time. Once you're a cigar person, you're a member of the gang, a brother or sister of the leaf. You'll have a friend wherever you find a fellow cigar smoker, and what's more, you'll have a friend wherever you find a cigar store or lounge. Wherever you go and whatever you do, there'll be a little cigar-shaped place in your brain that is never fully asleep. There's a great egalitarian sense of cigar bonhomie, which doesn't include exclude ladies, by the way, who are equally welcome, which, until you've experienced it, can't be adequately described. Cigar people are the best. Thanks for joining me, dear reader, in this sultry alleyway cafe in Seuss, with sugared mint and the cocoa like number two lingering on our palates. Moustache is clanking away in the kitchen and singing in a mournful dirge. The cat still sprawls drunkenly nearby. I ask you to close your eyes. Let the hubbub of the souk and the lugubrious swish of the overhead fan fade from your ears. Like an eddy of cigar smoke, we are shapeshifting to another time and another destination. Well, that was chapter one, Moustache, from Around the World in 80 Cigars, The Travels of an Epicure, my book, available now via www.nick-hammond.com in all good cigar merchants uh, and booksellers. 
hope you enjoyed it. That one's for you, Lawrence. I hope you're well. I hope everybody's uh, getting through this tough time. If you're simply at home and bored, but not particularly affected, hang on in there. If you are affected, either uh, one of those amazing people that are putting everything out there to keep us alive, then I would personally thank you. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with me, I'd like to uh, perhaps post a little something in the post for you if you're a cigar lover. Uh, and if you have family members that are involved or have been involved or affected by this terrible virus, then we're all thinking of you. If you need help, reach out for it. We have to help each other in these times. Uh, and if you just want to chat about cigars or anything related to anything, the book or where I've been or my adventures, then, uh, then I'd happily chat to you via any uh, social media or email, etc. I hope you enjoy this little on-tracto bonus pod. We have a new pod for you uh, on Friday. And I'm keeping beavering away, creating interesting stories for you. All the best to you all. Until next time. Mm-hmm.